0: We'll be reading from the book of First Peter this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, our Frontlines team has some Bibles that they are happy to hand out. So you can just put up your hand if you are in need of one of those. So once again, in the book of First Peter, we'll be in chapter 5, looking at the last couple of verses, starting with verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It is good to be together to be reminded of God's good news and his word. Um, This day is obviously a day for some of us in the room. Men, I'm talking to you, is a day of reflection, right? Um, I was thinking this morning as I was sitting here, um, you know, there's this pressure that I oftentimes live under and that I have to be the perfect father. Um, I've got to do all of these different things. You know, I've got to make sure that my kids are perfectly parented And, you know, it's interesting, as I look back on my relationship with my own dad, it's actually my dad's witness and testimony and an example in his brokenness that was significant for me. Uh, I remember at one particular time, actually, my dad... Um, he perceived that he made a mistake. He chose a church meeting over coming and watching my band play in a talent show at our high school um, that I was in, Uh, this hardcore screamo band that I was part of when I was in high school. And my dad made the decision that he was going to go to this elders meeting. And a few days later, he actually came to me and he said, Matt, I I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. I chose a meeting over over you. And that was significant for me. Um, And so I want to encourage all the men in this room, that we lead, we lead our children in our brokenness, and it's in our brokenness that then we have the opportunity to point them to our, to our perfect Heavenly Father. And, um, you know, as we've been talking about First Peter, we've been talking a lot about suffering and what suffering does to us in our lives, and my dad also went through a fairly intense period. He was um, not in vocational ministry uh, as, a, as a pastor, then was part of a, ch- a church. Um, As a pastor and then he was released from that role and that was a significant time in his life Um, Situation was unique in many ways, but it was a significant time in his life and he grew a lot and he Developed an intimacy with Jesus in those months and in those years following that decision that he now experiences I remember when Andre and I actually first uh, started dating Um, How many years ago would that be now? Like 11 or 12 years ago, he said, I'm not a hugger. And my dad now is one of the, the huggiest men I've ever met. He's 6'8", so it's kind of awkward to give him a hug. And you're all like, why aren't you taller? My mom's down here. And so um, it's difficult to give this man a hug, but he is now emotionally available. Um, he and I have, are trying to grow in our relationship with one another. And so, you know, it's it's a really interesting thing being a dad, you know, and Hollywood picks up on it, right? You, th- you think about numerous movies that are trying to pick up on the relationship between father their sons and their kids because it's a fascinating storyline and so I just want to encourage all of us as as men that we can we can fail and it's okay it's expected and when we do we have an increased opportunity to point our kids to Jesus and to the our perfect heavenly father and so live in light of that today and in the years to come well, with that, why don't we take a moment to pause? We are headed into the final verses in First Peter today. And so let's take a moment to pause, maybe consider where you're at, how you're feeling this morning, sadness, happiness, joy, whatever it might be. And then we'll invite Jesus into that place, and then we'll keep going. So, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this morning, and I thank you that you are a perfect Father. And so, for the men in the room that that live under a constant pressure uh, to be perfect, as you know that I often do, I thank you, Jesus, that you came and declared in your life and in your death and in your resurrection that I don't have to be perfect. And so, therefore, I have the opportunity to point my children to you, to say sorry and to apologize regularly. And I pray that we would be men in this room that apologize regularly that are about self-reflection of our hearts and recognize that we fall short. But we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you do not. And so we rejoice in that. In your name we pray. Amen. How many people in this room like goodbyes? Raise your hand if you like goodbyes. Not many of us do, right? Like, you look around, like, there's not a lot of us that really uh, revel in the idea of goodbyes. And so that, that's a normal thing. So this week, I actually looked up on the internet, uh, typed it into Google, how to say goodbye, uh, to see what would pop up. And there's a website called uh, WikiHow. So I guess it's like maybe a brother or sister site to Wikipedia called WikiHow. And the article was, was taglined, how to say goodbye, And so this was the bit of the description that popped up underneath of it. It said, knowing how and when to say goodbye is often difficult, even in informal, even in informal situations. But learning to say goodbye eloquently, tactfully, and appropriately is a skill that will help you maintain your relationships and let people know that you care. It's also easier than it seems sometimes. Read on to learn how to recognize opportunities and anticipate others' needs when you leave. <laughs> and so that there's like all these different descriptions of how to say goodbye. So there's how to say goodbye in short-term situations, how to say goodbye in long-term situations, how to say indefinite goodbyes. So I want to read us some of the ideas that they provide as far as how to say long-term goodbyes. And you know what? If you are struggling with the goodbye thing, as many of us don't like them, and it is difficult, check it out, wikiHow, how to say goodbyes. You can find out. But here's what they suggest as far as how to say long-term goodbyes. Number one, plan an appropriate time to talk before the departure. So if someone you know is leaving for several years to go overseas or leaving for college, it can be a stressful and hectic time while they're planning a trip. Set up a definitive time and place to meet and say goodbye. Likewise, prioritize your goodbyes if you're the one doing the leaving. Don't make plans with people you don't really care about saying goodbye to. And for then, forget to see your sister. As part of this, choose an enjoyable location, maybe over dinner, or strolling your favorite neighborhood, or spending time together doing something both of you have always enjoyed, like watching a game. Okay, so plan an appropriate time to talk before the departure. Number two, you ready? Talk about the good times you've had. Recount your funniest stories, reminisce about happy things, dig deep into your past, the things you've done together, the things that happened while you were friends, the time you have spent together, maybe even how you met. Okay, so number two, talk about the good times. Number three, be open and friendly. It's important to establish the standing of the relationship. If you wanna keep in contact, let them know. Exchange email, phone, and address information. Asking for an email address or phone number can be comforting so that you can still talk with them. But also be honest. If you have no intention, intentions of staying in touch, don't ask for contact details. It can leave a departing friend wondering about your sincerity. Okay, fair. Number four, When it's time to leave, make it brief and sincere. Most people don't enjoy a long, drawn-out goodbye, but make your goodbye personal. If you need to express complicated feelings, consider writing them a letter for the person to read later. In person, keep things light and fun. Hug, say your peace, and wish them luck in their journey. Don't overstay your welcome. Oh, boy. And number five, final way of saying a long-term goodbye. This is real, folks. I'm not making any of this up. Follow-up. Stay in touch if you've made plans to stay in touch. Talk on Skype or write funny postcards. If you gradually lose touch with a friend or loved one you sincerely would like to hear from, make an extra effort. If it seems as if your friend has become too busy, try not to get too upset. Let things drift back together naturally. Keep your expectations for communication realistic. A friend going to college will make new friends and might not be able to keep up on a weekly phone exchange. Everyone feel prepared to say a long-term goodbye, right? This is hilarious. We have gotten like so lost in our culture on how to do relationships, on how to formally say goodbye to people that we need something like WikiHow to tell us how to say goodbye. But here's the thing. As I said at the very beginning, we all do not like goodbyes. Most of us do not like, how, like to have to actually do it. Peter, in his letter, is coming to the end. And so he's recognizing, okay, I've got to wrap this up. I've got to say goodbye. Now, you and I all know now that there is second Peter. But here, Peter is going to end his letter. And so what's interesting as we focus on this is what are the things that Peter includes in his goodbye? And is that significant as we look back at the rest of the letter and how he wants to close things off? So if you have your Bibles, let's see how Peter says goodbye and how he brings his letter to a close. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. What does he say in his closing? He says, once again, he reminds us in verse 10, and after after you have suffered a little while. You know, we have seen this repeatedly throughout 1 Peter. He keeps getting back to this. He keeps harping on the reality that life is filled with suffering. It's inevitable. As we read last week, he writes, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And here he gets back to it, and he says, after you have suffered a little while. But that also tells us that at a point, suffering is going to end, that there is an end to suffering. And for followers of Jesus, we understand when that is, when Jesus returns. So he begins, after you have suffered a little while. What happens after we suffer suffer a little while? Answer, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let me read this again. This is an incredible promise. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What is Peter telling us? Well, as some of you are familiar in our missional communities and in our DNAs, Spencer has coached us to use a few questions to ask when we're going through the scriptures, and the first question we ask ourselves is, "Who is God?" And Peter tells us here, "Who is God? God is the God of all grace." This is incredible. We serve a God of grace. He is both the possessor and the giver of grace. And you might ask the question, "Well, what is grace?" Grace is unmerited. The unmerited and free favor of God. The unmerited and free favor of God. Think about that. Peter is not just saying this is something God does, which we understand that he does. He's a giver of it. He's also, as part of his characteristic, is gracious. The God of all grace. He loves you. He's for you. He's not against you. He gives his unmerited free favor to you through Jesus Christ. So who is God? He's the God of all grace. What has God done is the second question we asked. What has he done? He's called you believers to his eternal glory in Christ. The wording that Peter uses is called, and this refers to God's work in bringing believers into relationship with him. And this salvation and God's calling is possible through the work of the life and death of Jesus Christ. And this is the sure hope and certain future that followers of Jesus have. That God is a God of grace, but then we have a sure and certain hope and future. You know, there are a lot of people in our culture, and I would say Christians, we also struggle with this too, if we don't realize the certainty that we have of what our future looks like. And we're always reminded of future or death when it comes to a funeral, right? And people sit at funerals, and I've led funerals before. And, and people sit and we grieve the person that has been lost, but it also forces you to look introspectively and said, and people are asking questions at funerals of like, where am I going if there is a place to go? What is the hope that I have? What is the future? And so here Peter is reminding his readers that you as followers of Jesus have a certain future because of who God is and because of what God has done. Thirdly, what is and what will God do? What is God doing and what will God do? We read here that he will restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish believers. He uses the word restore to start, and this means to put in order, to make right To complete, to prepare, or to create. It's what he does in our lives. He's doing it now in our lives, but then he's also going to bring it to completion when he returns. That God is restoring us. What does he also do? He's confirming us. It's his assurance and the hope that he gives us through the good news of Jesus. He's also strengthening us believe it or not, the verb that Peter actually uses for strengthen, it's the only time found in the New Testament, and it's pointing to the fact that the risen Christ removes our fear of Satan, the roaring lion. Remember last week where Peter says, be aware of the roaring lion who's ro- roaring and moving around seeking someone to devour? What well, Peter is now saying is, remember, he's, God's strengthening you. This is what he's doing in you so that you can say no to the roaring lion. So you won't be devoured. He's strengthening you. And then he's also establishing you. He's saying you are given a firm and fixed foundation. A firm and fixed foundation that we can live with hope. I just want to stop and ask you, do you live with a daily knowledge, a daily reality that you live with hope that the rest of the world, if they're not followers of Jesus, do not have? Because this is what Peter is pointing us to. He's saying, listen, you followers of Jesus, you have a hope. You have a future that the watching world does not have. Do you live in light of that hope? Do you live in light of that future? Because this shapes how you then interact with others. And then we can ask the question, well, who are we? If this is what, who God is, if this what is God has done and is, is doing, who are you and I? Well, you and I are the called, restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established ones. We are the object and work of God's mission in Christ. We are the completed, restored, strengthened, and established ones. And why does God do this in us? reminds me back of 1 Peter 5, verse 7, where we read that God does this work, and we can cast our anxieties on God because God cares for us. Because he cares for us. He gives us a hope and a future. He gives us certainty, strength. He establishes us. He confirms us. So that, and because of the fact that he loves us, he's for us. He cares deeply for us. And then we ask the question, well, then what are we to do? What ought our response to be to the work that God is doing in and through us? And this is what we're pointed to in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter is saying is, is that based on who God is, what God has done and will do, and therefore who you and I are, we can therefore trust him and rejoice. You remember in the past weeks, we talked about what should our response be to suffering after you have suffered a little while? Rejoice. And all of us are still shaking our heads like, Peter, really? Rejoice in the midst of suffering? Rejoice in our experiences? Why? He's pointing us to it again here. Who God is, what God has done, who we are, and therefore how we ought to live if these things are, in fact, true. Habakkuk 2.14 in the Old Testament It's a prophecy. It reads like this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is forecasting a day when the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth. He's pointing us to that so we can understand that we can have hope. We have a future. We have a certain future. We have a certain specific hope that one day when Christ is going to return, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and we can celebrate Jesus Christ. Well, what comes next? How does Peter bring his letter to a close? Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen sends you greetings and so does Mark my son greet one another with a kiss of love peace to all of you who are in Christ now Peter focuses on six things that I can identify here in his closing here are the six things number one Sylvanus. Now, you might ask the question, who is Silvanus? Sylvanus is also known as Silas. He's a Jew, but a Roman citizen. And what many commentators believe about Silas, Silvanus, is that he was likely he helped Peter construct the letter and then he also was the one that would have taken the letter to the churches. And so he's a representative of Peter to the Christians that are the recipients of this letter. And therefore, he can kind of do a bit of the, um, the explaining as, he, as he's going through the letter. And the reason Peter says he's a faithful brother is he's pointing to the fact is that, listen, you can trust this guy. I've trusted in him. You can trust him. And as he comes and as he gives you the words that I want to share, he can also fill you in on the other things that are going on. So trust Sylvanus. That's why he mentions mentions him here in the letter. Secondly, he goes on to sort of give a summary statement to the letter's purpose. He says he's exhorting and testifying to God's grace. He's exhorting. Remember last week I talked about what exhorting means? It means to urge, it's to pressure. And what's he doing? He's urging and pressuring us to believe the good news of God's grace, to testify to the good news of God's grace. He then presents a challenge. He says to stand firm in the grace of God. He says grace has grasped you believers. He's saying don't be pushed to and fro by your suffering. Don't let your circumstances define how you're going to live, and your emotional well-being. Stand firm in God's grace. Understand who God is, what he has done, who you are, and then what you are commissioned to go and to do. He then gives general greetings. Now, he mentions this strange sentence, right? She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. What Peter is doing is he's referring to actually the church in Rome. And so what he's saying is the believers here in Rome, whom I'm presently with, say hello. Hello, you know, hello, hello. And then he also says a general greeting from Mark. And Mark is John Mark. He's the one that also accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. And obviously, there's a loving, fatherly affection between Peter and John Mark because he refers to him as his son. Now, this is not his biological son, which once again points us to the incredible reality of God's kingdom. And that we are brothers and sisters. And so he's referring to John Mark as the, his son. Mark, John Mark was to Peter, and some of us are familiar with what, who Timothy was to Paul a mentor, a fatherly role model, a person that he would look to. So some general greetings. Fifth, communal affection, kiss of love. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And this is referring to the love that members should, be, should be, have between one another. Now, if you haven't, which many of you haven't, there are those in the room who have experienced this, but you've gone to Lebanon. Does anyone who has been to Lebanon, Nick, would you and Naomi show us how the believers in Lebanon greet one another? Do you remember how they greet one another? Dave, you're there. Could you, could you show us, could you and Donna please stand and show us how the believers in Lebanon greet one another? Yes! Yes, thank you. Woo! Now, this is this is you know you're 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 going from our Canadian culture, which is like I. Stay away from me. Hello, you know, welcome. You know, got your arms crossed, don't come near, right? Or is it okay if I hug you? Or, you know, do I shake your hand? Like, I remember being in youth ministry, it was like, hey, welcome to youth, nice to meet you. Like, it was a very strange thing. You show up in Lebanon as a, as a Canadian who's, again, just like, stay away from me. And everyone's greeting you with, like, Men to men, men to women, and, you know, you're greeting each other with these beautiful kisses on the cheek, and, you know, hugs. And so I show up, and I'm, I'm a fairly, I like to hug, so, you know, don't be, ever be scared. I like to give hugs. It's my preferred way of saying hello. Um, but, you know, I show up, and I'm, I'm right in there, and the other guys that were on my team this past time, they were, like, laughing at me because, you know, I'm just following suit. I'm getting right into it. But what do, we, what do you see? What, do, what is exemplified in their example and their testimony, right? These believers in Lebanon, in my experience, is like, It forces them to show a level of affection and care with one another. It's pretty amazing that it's how they greet one another. It's how they say, you know, it is really wonderful to see you. And while while I was there in Lebanon, we would actually see each other daily. So I was doing these daily hello, welcome, greeting, kisses with, with, with everybody, right? It wasn't like, well, we did that yesterday so we can skip it today. It was like, no, get in here. Blah, blah, you know, hello, you know, welcome to Lebanon. I mean, this is what Peter is getting at. He's, he's calling out the church and he's, he's saying, like, may there be an affection that you have with one another that, that rivals the affection that or the watching world has. And sometimes I wonder about that you know, in our local churches. And I, th- and I think it's worth saying. Now, I'm not saying that our method ought to be the kiss of love or the Lebanon greeting, but when people that do not know and love and follow Jesus come into the presence of Christians, do they see a level of affection that we have one another that they don't see in our culture? I was downtown Toronto on uh, Thursday night, Andre and I, um, she graduated on Friday morning from uh, her restorative hygiene. And so we went in a night early to, s- to spend the night. And we just so happened to be able to be downtown Toronto when the Toronto Raptors won, um, it won the title, which was an amazing experience. Got some great video. Really, really interesting. But you know what was really cool? When something like that happens, we're all, everybody there is experiencing this communal reality, right we are all celebrating the fact that the toronto raptors have won and so you're walking along the street and people are people are giving each other hugs people are patting each other on the back you know we gave multiple high fives to people that we've never met before why because we are all reveling in the same incredible thing that we're celebrating together you know maybe there's a bit of an illustration there to say as followers of jesus we celebrate an incredible reality in the gospel of jesus christ that we have a sure and certain hope and future. And therefore, we ought to be giving each other high fives all the time or hugging one another or greeting each other or expressing our affection and our celebration because we have something worth celebrating. Right? So I don't know how we're going to practice that out in our community. But my hope and prayer is that when people come in contact with our missional communities and our gathered spaces, is that people would come in and go, wow, they care for each other in a way that I do not see in the, watching, in, the other, in the other places that I'm hanging out. You know, especially as there is less touch happening. Right? Maybe we rival that in some way. And then sixth, so there's the communal affection, the challenge to the kiss of love. Sixth thing here is the peace wish. It says, peace to all who are in Christ. Now, closing the letter with peace, as you think about all the suffering we've been talking about, is a significant because believers in these churches were challenged by trials, persecutions, and stress. And what they need in this situation more than anything else is Christ's Peace. And so he says, the peace to are all in Christ, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the environment and the ostracization, the marginalization, and what is expected to come, may you have peace and may the peace of Christ be over you. So how does Peter bring his letter to a close and say goodbye? Peter reminds the audience that through the gospel, they have hope in the midst of their suffering. He reminds them that through the gospel, he's saying, recall what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. That's a historical event that has enormous implications for your life, and it changes the way that you live. I just want to encourage us today to be considering how does the gospel of Jesus Christ change the way that you live? Change the way that you interact with the world around you. Change the hope that you have on a day-to-day basis. And does it? I mean, we've got to ask that question. Does it? It ought to. It has the power to through the Holy Spirit. So how can we respond now? Well, I think about how the churches might have responded. And I think an answer to that question is in gratitude and collective thankfulness through prayer and praise. Praise. Right? You remember, you know, think about that. Like receiving this letter from Peter at one point was with you, is now away from you, and you get this letter encouraging you, loving on you, reminding you of what matters. What would they have done? They would have had gratitude and a collective thankfulness, and they would have done that through prayer and praise. So, you know what I want to do? I want to do that right now. I want us to sit in small groups of people, and I want us to pray. I want us to gather with one another so that we can affection, communal affection. So here, here's a little bit, you know, I'm going to do the step-by-step like WikiHow. How to get into a small group and pray. Um, this is how you do that. You turn around. Uh, if you do not know the person on the other side of your circle, ask them what their name is. <laughs> if they refuse to give you their name, pray that you would have grace towards them, you know. Then you might say, what are we going to pray about? Huh. I've got some things on the screen. Here's what you can pray about. I want you to confess your unbelief. You know, maybe for you today, this is why we go through who is God, what has God done, therefore who are we? Because when we we believe falsely, like if we say, you know, my circumstances are more powerful than God, we're believing that God is not all-powerful. And so we want to confess that unbelief and say, God, I want to believe, I'm struggling to believe that you are in control, that you are all powerful. So we want to confess our unbelief Secondly, what we want to do is we want to ask for faith to believe, one, who God is. He's the God of all grace. What God has done. He's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Who are we? We are the called, restored, confirmed ones. And also what God has promised to do in the future, that we live with a living hope, as Peter said in the very beginning of his letter. You have a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope. And then fourth, we want to pray for the Spirit's power and strength to trust Him, rejoice, and to persevere and keep going. Because maybe you're in a place today where you're just like, it, was, it took every ounce of strength, both for myself and the Holy Spirit, to get me out of bed this morning. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would impress upon us and fill us with His power to keep going. So groups of three to five, if you don't know the name... Ask names, show some communal affection, pray for about 10 minutes, and then we're going to praise God in response in song. Let me open us with prayer first before we transition. So God, we thank you so much for the letter of 1 Peter. We thank you for Peter, and through your Holy Spirit, instructing him to write this letter, and now we are recipients of this letter. And God, as we begin to experience increasing marginalization and ostracization for following you in our culture, uh, increasingly we are becoming, and we recognize that our identity as a faithful minority is a reality, and so we want to be faithful. But we recognize today that we need to confess our unbelief, that we need to trust who you are, what you've done, and what you promised to do in the future. And then we also pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would remind us of your power and of your presence. I pray that we would be a praying, faithful people, calling on you, asking you to do something in our day that we have never seen done before. And God, we ask that you would see to use us. So thank you. We love you, in your name, amen.